0: Grace and peace to you. This is Lieutenant Roger McCourt from the Salvation Army in Eureka. Thank you for your interest in our message. If you would like to know more about us or what we do, just find us on the web at eurekasalarmy.org or email me, Roger.McCourt@usw.salvationarmy.org. at org. Thank you for listening. I never know the right way to talk about stuff in the news. I mean, sometimes it's obvious you need to pull something up, and then you need to of contact, and then... We all have a good laugh together. Bye. This has not been a laughing week. Um, There have been uh, two very high-profile celebrity suicides and a lot of other bad news. And suicide in particular comes from a place that we're going to talk about in our message today. And it's a place that that last song in particular uh, reminds us shouldn't exist. It's a place where there's no hope. When you get to a point that there's no hope and you feel like there's no reason that you should hang on, please remember that there are people holding on to you. When I was 16, I started college. I was not ready. I mean, I was, academically I was ready. I was way beyond where I should have been. I was not emotionally set for going, leaping from my somewhat isolated uh, environment into uh, a junior college where my closest classmate was about 20 years my elder. And seeing the futility around me and uh, the desperation of some of the people, I, I missed the hope. And I lost my own hope. I spent about six months in deep depression that no one really noticed because I tend to be so isolated anyway that is, you think that's true now. should have seen me back then. I had moved away from my home that I knew when I was 14. My, my dad got uh, promoted when they broke up Ma Bell. Got to be a certain age to know what I'm talking about there. But essentially, the job moved us. And I got moved to a place, we moved from a a nice suburb where we were connected to all of our friends and family, to a place that was away from everyone, it was very rural. A lot of times, the only time I left the house was to go to school or to a job, and I didn't particularly connect with any of those things. And at the end of that six months, I had no hope. Now fortunately for me, I'm an intellectual. Intellectual. So when I decided that that was it and I was going to end my life, I said, well, I'm going to make sure I do it right. I'm going to find the only way to actually kill yourself that always works. I'm a very good researcher. There is no way. Someone survived everything. I thought I had figured it out when uh, I decided I was going to go skydiving without a parachute, but you know what happened in that week? Someone fell out of an airplane 22,000 feet, landed in a mud puddle no more than half an inch deep, a mud puddle half an inch deep in someone's pasture, and got up and walked away. I went to school with a guy who thought that he would take his life with a gun, and he had a scar. To show for it. He was fine. But he had a hole in the side of his head. That had grown over. So, from an intellectual perspective. It was foolish to commit suicide. From a perspective of not having any hope. The reality is. There is always hope. We just forget where to look for it. Three months after that point, I found myself at a summer camp rededicating my life to Jesus, which was very important because it connected me to people that I didn't realize I was connected to. And it reminded me that there's always something to hold on to because God is always holding on to me. Even when I don't want him to. (laughs) Always holding on to me. So if you ever find yourself in a place where there is no hope, you call me. You call someone. but call me. I don't care if you know me, don't know me. It's been 30 years since we've seen each other. You call me. I've got no hope. I'll help you find hope. Or at least realize that there are certain ways you do not get out of the darkness. I don't know why these people this week particularly struck me. I think it's because Anthony Bourdain, I've always had he seems to approach the world kind of the same way I do, or he did. And I don't know what happened for someone who's fought and been in dark places and climbed out several times to reach a point that he felt he had no hope. makes no sense to me. But it happens. And I experienced it, so I know what happens. But there is always hope. So I just wanted to make sure that I took a moment to put that out. And as we get into the Scripture today, you'll see that that's, that's actually what Joel is going to be prophesying today. He's going to be speaking to people in their pain and their suffering and in their darkest hour about an even darker time that's coming. But he wants to make sure that they understand there is always because hope comes from God, and God is outside of all of this. Amen. So we'll get to that. But we need to dismiss the youngsters to junior church. So if you're a kid, you're going to go with Lieutenant Bridget and her fine assistants. Alright, well, grace and peace to you all. We are majoring in the minors this month. I'm studying uh, the minor prophet Joel. Last week in chapter 1, we heard him uh, call people to wake up and repent and act on their repentance. There was this disaster going on, and he said, you know, in spite of this disaster that's happening right now with all these locusts that have swarmed in and essentially destroyed our livelihood, our food, our economic system, and any hope that we have for the future, a few years anyway, um, in spite of that, The day of the Lord is coming, and that could be even more horrifying and terrible than this. That's not discouraging. Now, he did offer a couple of encouraging words towards the end of the chapter, but pretty much just to point us towards his description as he shifts from talking about the disaster that had occurred to talking about the disaster that is coming. So if you've got your Bible with you, turn to Joel chapter 2. Joel is in the Old Testament. You'll find it... uh, Probably about 55% of the way, 60% of the way through the book. We're going to start at verse 1 in Joel chapter 2. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and blackness. Like dawn spreading across the mountains, a large and mighty army comes such as never was in ancient times nor ever will be in ages to come. Now there is some link here to what he was talking about in the first chapter uh, because this first verse here is another key statement. Remember key statements from last week, those of you who are here? They have the, word, the Hebrew word key in them, which means... Uh, essentially we decided it means because it's a little more than that it's hard to translate but it means because now joel is using that syntax he uses it really throughout the whole book but um, i think he uses it right at the beginning of this section to kind of split the previous section and the new section but tell you that they're still connected here in verse one chapter two it says let all who live in the land tremble because key the day of the lord is coming So he wants you to shift your focus to the day of the Lord. Because that's what's important here. And he wants you to know that that's something that's to be... Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and say feared. He wants you to know that this is coming, and he wants you to know it's going to be bigger and more intimidating than anything that's ever come before. It is not a day to be looked forward to. In fact, uh, just to kind of bring it home, he uses four different words for darkness in uh, this this one verse. He says there's darkness, there's gloom, and then, uh, depending on translation, overcast or shadowed, hidden from the light. And then he says blackness. And the word darkness, we can trace it all the way back to the, the very beginning. Almost the very beginning, actually. It's the second verse of Genesis, Genesis 1-2 where we hear about the darkness hovering over the deep. And then in verse 4, God separates the darkness from the light. So this is darkness that has been there since God created it in the beginning. There's a darkness with no light in it, a blackness to which our eyes can never adjust. And that much darkness is something that our whole sense of the world just recoils from because we human beings have only ever known a world with light in it. And this darkness comes like an army. Or perhaps an army comes like this darkness. Or perhaps they come together. And you get to verse 3, and Joel says, Before them fire devours, and behind them a flame blazes. Before them the land is like the Garden of Eden, and behind them it is a desert waste. Nothing escapes. They have the appearance of horses, they gallop along like cavalry. With a noise like that of chariots, they leap over the mountaintops like a crackling fire consuming stubble, like a mighty army drawn up for battle. And I need to tell you this. This is important. Never does Joel call Judah out for their sin. He doesn't single out their leaders for their failings. He doesn't bring up any specific wrongdoing of the people. He is not like the other prophets. The other prophets almost revel in the fact that, look, you've been doing this and you need to stop that. That's what God is condemning. Joel doesn't do that. He says, I'm just going to tell you what's happened. And this is probably because he's not writing to people who are comfortable in their transgressions. Like Amos was writing to people who were were celebrating their worship of false idols. Joel's writing to people who are in the midst of their suffering. These locust swarms, the four of them that have come, They left them reeling, they left them broken, and they left them with no hope. No hope. Where do you go when everything is gone? Some may have thought that the horror of the locust was the very day of the Lord at hand, and Joel is here to warn them that that's not the case. There could be more darkness on the other side. If you've gone through suffering in your life, a lot of times you'll notice that you come out of suffering and you think, oh, that's good, I've faced that. It will never come again. I'm sorry, life often hurts. Joel has encouraged people at the end of chapter 1, he's encouraged them seek mercy from God. And then he launched into this description in chapter 2. Like, hey, things are terrible. Ask God for mercy. By the way, things could get worse. Oh my goodness, that's not encouraging, is it? And when he shifts to chapter 2, he's not talking about the locust swarm anymore. He's using it as a seed to talk about what will come. This imminent disaster that's looming. He uses the images of what happened with the swarm to give you images of this darkness. Whatever it is. Verse 6. At the sight of them, the armies, the darkness, nations are in anguish. Every face turns pale. They charge like warriors. They scale walls like soldiers. They all march in line, not swerving from their course. They do not jostle each other. Each marches straight ahead. They plunge through defenses without breaking ranks. They rush upon the city. They run along the wall. They climb into the houses like thieves. They enter through the windows. Before them the earth shakes. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars no longer shine. The Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number, and mighty is the army that obeys his command. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? Who indeed? When the message was just that an immense unstoppable army was coming, there was still a chance, right? It's not the first time Israel's been faced with an unstoppable army. It's not the first time they've had no defenses that would hold up against the people who are attacking. So they still had hope. Right up until verse 11. Verse 11 suggests that this enemy is truly undefeatable. Whose army is this? The Lord's army. The Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number. Who's bringing the darkness? God is bringing the darkness. It's obliterating nations, ignoring defenses, not slowing or being delayed by anything in His path. Even the sun, the moon, and the stars are blotted out. Their light is stopped. I mean, when you think about it, who created these feeble lights that power our universe? God did. So when they don't serve His purpose, they can be switched off leaving us in darkness. Cosmic lights are not necessary for God to see. So who can endure this day of the Lord? Now, here's the trick. The very thought of this darkness can leave us uncertain and afraid, but that is not the point that Joel's message is trying to make. He's not here to just heap disaster on destruction. He's here to remind us that there's hope. He's here to remind us there is hope even in the darkest of times when we have trouble believing that there can ever be light again. One of the uh, uh, early philosophers of the church, a guy named Origen, he said, These lights which are perceived by our senses are said by Moses to have come into existence on the fourth day. They are not the true light. The Savior, on the other hand, is the light of the spiritual world. He is the maker of and Director of all things, and He is the true Son of the day of the Lord. Who can endure this day of the Lord? If you read that one way at the end of that description, it's hopeless. Who can endure this? If you read it the way I think Joel intended, it's encouraging. Who can endure this? Who can take this? Those who have inner light that they don't need to fear the darkness. Those who have given their hearts to God, they don't need to fear the darkness. You know why I think this is supposed to be encouraging? Because that's verse 11. Look at verse 12. Even now, declares the Lord, even in the midst of the darkness, even falling to the enemy, falling to the hordes who are overwhelming you, Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and He relents from sending calamity. Who knows, He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing, grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. Even now, As the whole world seems to be consumed by chaos and pain, by darkness and destruction, God calls to His creation, His children, turn back. Be saved. Rend your heart, not your garments. Tearing your clothes. That was how people showed grief. They'd be like, oh, things are terrible. Let me rip my shirt. You can see how bad things are. God says, don't tear that. Tear your heart. Remember when ancient people talk about their heart, they're not talking about warm, fuzzy feelings that you keep inside of you. They're talking about the seat of your intellect, the place where your will, your decision making sits. Tear into that. Pull it out of its matrix. That's a that's a miner's term, matrix. Gemstones are often found embedded in other kinds of rocks. Sandstone, quartz, granite, you'll find the gemstones stuck in that. It's called the matrix. You can't really see the stone while it's stuck in the matrix. So as the miners are like hammering away, they break the rocks, they fall open, they find the crystals. They say, oh. Some of you may have seen like like geodes. Geodes are a natural matrix. It's a bubble. It's a little rock. You cut it in half and there's crystals on the inside. Light cannot get through. And it definitely can't shine through. Things that are stuck in a matrix. Stones can't be taken out and worked or faceted into the treasures that they could be if they're still in their matrix. They have to be separated or torn from the valueless stone that keeps them trapped in the dark. The heart is the same. You have to pry it free from the things that keep it from God. Pry it free from the things of the world. Give it to God. God is the master master jeweler. He wants to... To bring out our greatest value. To bring out the greatest value of a gemstone you dig up out of the dirt, you have to wash it off. You have to polish it. In cases, you have to fast it off little breaks until you have a beautiful gemstone. You put it in an elegant setting, and it is as valuable as it can possibly be. God wants to bring out our greatest value. So rend your heart, not your garments. Return to God. He may relent. Who says that? God says that. Do you notice that? It's not Joel saying that. It's not just me saying that. It's God saying that. God's like, things are terrible. I'm going to wipe you out because you are horrible, horrible people and judgment has come. By the way, just ask for forgiveness. Please don't make me do this. Verse 15 Blow the trumpet in Zion. Declare a holy fast. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the assembly. Bring together the elders. Gather the children. Those nursing at the breast. Let the bridegroom leave his room. Let the bride leave her chamber. Let the priests who minister before the Lord weep between the portico and the altar and let them say, Spare your people, Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among oh, the peoples, "Where is their God?" Yes. Cry out! Yes, there is hope that can light the deepest darkness. Yes. Verse eighteen tells you why. Then the Lord was jealous for His land, and He was on His people. Jealous—that this is not jealousy. Land. It's not like that suspicious, greedy ownership jealousy. That's usually when we use the word jealous. That's what we're talking about. Someone is like, "I own you." So I'm jealous. Am I going to let you go anywhere and not do anything? Don't you have other friends? Just the people I say. It's not that kind of jealousy. Because from the Hebrew word kana. It means zealous, desiring, wanting success. God is jealous for his land and his people this way. Zealous for them. Thank you, Lord. We were created for a purpose. Creation was made for a purpose. And God is jealous to see those purposes fulfilled. He wants us out Thank you. doing what we're supposed to do, not locked in our matrices. God fears that we will be lost, that we will refuse to be saved. Begging for us not. Yes. Please, help me. God will always do all that he can to see us saved. He will always offer mercy in hopes that we will accept it. God's mercy... Creates hope. Remember that God's mercy creates hope. We should live in hope because we understand God's mercy. Joel says, "If they just repent and accept God's mercy, true salvation can occur." Verse nineteen. And the Lord replied to them, "I am sending you grain." New wine and olive oil, enough to satisfy you fully. Never again will I make you an object of scorn to the nations. Face the darkness, hold on to the hope. There is reward. I will drive the northern horde far from you, pushing it into a parched and barren land. Its eastern ranks will drown in the Dead Sea and its western ranks in the Mediterranean Sea. And its stench will go up and its smell will rise. And Joel goes on to say, surely... God has done great things. And there are those who link this to the invasion of the Assyrians that would happen about a century later. Say the Assyrian army came like this darkness. The Assyrians destroyed everything except Jerusalem. They might as well have destroyed Jerusalem. There was nothing else left before they were driven off. Some people talk about Scripture, prophecy and scripture being a shadow of things to come, where God sets up a little thing says, Okay, this is gonna happen so you can understand how that's gonna happen. This small thing is gonna happen so you can understand this bigger thing that's coming. And maybe that's what's going on here. We'll talk about that in just a sec. Verse twenty one. Joel goes on, Do not be afraid, land of Judah, be glad and rejoice, because surely the Lord has done great things. Do not be afraid, you wild animals, for the pastures in the wilderness are becoming green. The trees are bearing their fruit, the fig tree and the vine yield their riches. Be glad, people of Zion, rejoice in the Lord your God, for He has given you the autumn rains because He is faithful. He sends you abundant showers, both autumn and spring rains as before. The threshing floors will be filled with grain, the vats will overflow with new wine and oil. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten, the great locust and the young locusts, the other locust and the locust swarm, my great army that I sent among you. Hold on to hope. Everything's destroyed behind the locust. Does that mean that God can't bring it back? Verse 26, you will have plenty to eat until you are full and you will praise the name of the Lord your God who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be shamed. Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God and that there is no other. Never again will my people be shamed. All this when salvation comes. It's this renewal. (laughs) I read a novel based on the book of Job. It's set in modern times. It's called the book of Joby. Uh, yeah, Joby. J-O-B-Y. It's kind of a fun read. Um, It's kind of the same thing as Job, except the author sets it up. It's it's a whole argument between God and Satan about who's going to control all of the universe. And uh, they set um, their wager on this one person. God says, no, he's always going to be faithful to me. And so it goes through this whole series of trials and supernatural events, and and, uh, you get to the end, and there, are, uh, all these characters in the book come to God and they're all very upset and they're like, why would you risk everything on this? And God's like, well, because I'm God. If for some reason it didn't work out, I could just do it again. We forget he's God. He created everything. I don't know about the theology of that book. but I, It made me think about everything suddenly a different way. I'm like, wait a minute. Does it matter that locusts have eaten everything? Can't God who... Uh, we're told in in one day said, put all the greenery in or one error or one age or however you want to look at it, it's still God. God's like, Okay, tree, grain, wagon train full of food, new sizzler. You know. Hopefully God created Sizzler. All this when salvation comes. Something comes also when salvation comes. Something even greater than earthly blessing or success. Something that's even more important than the greatest thing you could ever have thought of before. Verse 28. And afterward, after salvation comes, afterward, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my Spirit in those days. Exactly. Thank you, Jesus. This is exactly what Jesus promises. I'm going to go to the Father, and we're going to send a helper. The advocate. Our spirit. He'll pour out my spirit in those days. spirit will join with our spirit. It will be the source of inner light that can ignore the darkest night. Then we get to this, verse 30. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And these things cause so many people so much grief. They get so worried about them. I hate to point this out. They might have already happened. All of these things are signs that accompanied the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Every one of them. And the blood and fire and smoke, those are common descriptors of battle, like that of the Roman destruction of Jerusalem in the year 70, where they took out the temple. Were those shadows of a future event? Maybe, maybe not. Who can say? I can give you all kinds of reasons why it might be and all kinds of reasons why it might not be. But you know what Jesus said? Don't worry about tomorrow. Today's got enough worries of its own. So, frankly... We can't know what the end of days is going to be like. And we cannot decipher from these few cryptic statements what the plan was or is. Maybe it's still coming, maybe not. That's not how prophecy is meant to work. It's not what prophecy is meant to inspire. Remember, prophecy isn't so that we're going to know what's happening. It's so that when it happens, we can say, oh yeah, God said that was happening. He is in control. Prophecy is meant to inspire something entirely different. What is prophecy supposed to inspire? Look at the last verse of this chapter. Verse 32. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The rest of it just feeds back into that. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Who will be saved? Who's going to be saved? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. For those of you who have been on the Wednesday night Bible study, who's going to be saved? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. This is what Paul is trying to get across in Galatians. Bible study people. This is it. Who's going to be saved? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Is it people who follow a set of obscure rituals, follow the rules that you've laid down for people to be part of your church? People who put on blue polyester suits every Sunday. Salvation is for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. What else matters? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And that is that. If you have not called on the name of the Lord for salvation, call on the name of the Lord. It's not hard. Watch. God, save me. I trust You. Closing in prayer. Father, thank You so much that everyone who calls on Your name will be saved. Thank You that no matter how black things in this world seem, there is always hope. Because all we need to do is call on Your name. Does that end our worldly suffering? Maybe. And maybe not. Does it matter? No. All that matters, is we call on your name and we are saved. Help us to remember our hope is in you, Lord. Help us to remember that nothing else matters. Help us to remember that our hope is in you. And all we need to do is call on your name. In the name of Jesus your name. Amen.